Welcome to the Locust Valley Chapel Sermon Podcast. Our mission as a church is to help you discover, develop, and demonstrate life with Jesus. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, locustvalleychapel.org. We pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to you and minister to you in a powerful way as you listen to Sunday's message. that was intended to stop the church actually led to the good news of Jesus Christ spreading toward the ends of the earth. Phoenicia is, is north of Galilee. Cyprus is, is a large island in the Mediterranean Sea. It's about a, a hundred miles out. Antioch is like 300 miles north of Jerusalem. It's in modern day Turkey. So you can see this trajectory, this movement just keeps spreading outward and outward. But it sort of took a crisis of persecution to get followers of Jesus to go where he wanted them to go. Crisis does that sometimes, doesn't it? Crisis has a way of moving us out of our comfort zones and into those places where we don't always want to go. So if the old normal was sharing Jesus with Jewish people who were already religious, who already shared the same kind of morals, who already believed in one God, and who were already awaiting the Messiah, then the new normal meant moving among a people who didn't share the same religious beliefs, who didn't worship one God. They worshiped many gods. These were people who did not share the same kind of morality or values. In fact, Antioch, who was known for a lot of things, good morals wasn't one of them. Antioch had a population of about a half a million people. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Had a great amount of wealth, very diverse mix of culture, and it was actually pretty famous for its immorality. In fact, one commentator, Simon Kistemaker, says Antioch was known not for its virtues, but for its vices. He called it a city of moral depravity. I think Antioch sounds a lot like modern-day America, doesn't it? Which, if we're honest, probably makes us a bit uncomfortable. Uh, Because we are people who who like comfort. Our, Our elders had an elders' retreat about a month ago, and one of the questions we wrestled with is, what has the... What has the crisis of this global pandemic revealed to us about our our condition? Because the pandemic obviously created some new problems for us as a people and as a church. I get that. But it also revealed a lot of cracks that maybe we didn't see before. And so we asked these two questions. What has this crisis revealed about us personally as individuals? And what has it revealed to us about our church here at Locust Valley Chapel? And I won't share the personal stuff that we shared as a group, but as a church, we felt like the crisis revealed a number of things. For one, we love comfort. We love for things to go our way. We do not like not being in control. How many would agree that that's humanity, right? I think it also revealed that our discipleship, as as good as we think things are going, probably wasn't as deep as we hoped for. It was maybe a little shallower. It's easy to become content with status quo and just sort of stay there. Now again, the crisis didn't create those qualities in us. It simply revealed them. And I think a lot of times, maybe even most of the time, 
It takes a crisis or some kind of suffering to push us out of our old normal and into our new normal, which is actually normal. (laughs) So David Bosch, in his book on transforming mission, he writes this. It is rather normal for Christians to live in a situation of crisis. Strictly speaking, one ought to say that the church is always in a state of crisis, and its greatest shortcoming is that it is only occasionally aware of it. This ought to be the case because of the abiding tension between the church's essential nature and its empirical condition. Why is it then that we are so seldom aware of this element of crisis and tension in the church? Because the church has always needed apparent failure and suffering in order to become fully alive to its real nature and mission. And for many centuries, the church has suffered very little and has been led to believe that it is a success. Bosch goes on to write, let us also know that to encounter crisis is to encounter the possibility of truly being the church. So I want to put this out there. What if, what if God is using this crisis that we've been in now for, I don't know, 20, 21 months, whatever it's been, as an opportunity to invite us into a new normal? Like, what if he's inviting us into new possibilities of truly being the church? What if it could actually help make us more like the church that we've been reading about in Acts? If crisis and suffering moved them, it can move us. So what would it take for us to see this journey into whatever God's new normal for us is? That's what I want to talk about today. And I think Acts chapter 11 has a lot to teach us about this. For one thing, it teaches us about the kind of people who journey into this new normal. Notice verse 19 says that that those who were scattered by the persecution, they, they spread the word only to the Jews. And then in the New American Standard translation, it says, but there were some who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks as well, preaching the good news of the Lord Jesus. So I think that if we're going to enter into this new normal of being the church in our time, it's going to take some, but some people that we read about here, people who will see crisis not as an excuse to retreat, not as a reason to want to give up and go back to the way things were, but some people who will see this present moment as an opportunity to step out of our comfort zones in order to spread the good news of Jesus to the culture we live in. And you know what really encouraged me as I studied this passage? The, the but some people who left their comfort zones to tell the Gentiles about Jesus, they were ordinary people like you and me. They're just normal people. I mean, this is a huge turning point in the book of Acts. They are moving toward the ends of the earth mission that Jesus said, and we're not even told what their names are. They're just called some people. Men from Cyprus and Cyrene who began speaking to the Greeks as well, verse 20 says. Now let's think about this for a minute. Up until this point, a lot of what we've been reading about and a lot of what Jesus continued to do by the power of the Holy Spirit 
uh, was in fairly well-known people, right? Mostly through the apostles, this small group of guys who had been with Jesus. Let me just share a few summary verses that demonstrate what I'm talking about. Acts chapter 2, verse 43 says, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Again, that group of people that was with Jesus. Acts chapter 3, Peter and John, both apostles, heal this man who had been born lame. Acts chapter 4 verse 2, the religious leaders were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Acts chapter 4 verse 33 says, with great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Acts chapter 5 verse 12 says, the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And verse 13 says that they, the apostles, were highly regarded among the people, so they were well known. But then we get to Acts chapter 6, and we begin to see Jesus start to work through these lesser known people like Stephen. Acts chapter 6, 8 tells us that Stephen was full of grace and power, and that he performed wonders and signs among the people. Then there's Philip the evangelist in Acts chapter 8, verse 6. says, when the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, man, they all paid close attention to what he said. And now, starting in Acts 11, we begin to see Jesus continuing to do a lot of his kingdom work through people who may not be well known to the world, but they were known well by some. Listen to verse 21. It says, the Lord's hand was with them. Again, we don't know who them are. We don't know their names. But a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So we may not know who them really was, but we know whose hand was with them. And that's what really fires me up. See, we live in a world where like, we're impressed with fame and celebrity and popularity and superstars. And that's not just a 21st century thing. That's a human thing. Right? We didn't read this verse last week, but, but when Peter went to Cornelius' house in chapter 10, verse 25 says, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. He was just in awe of being in Peter's presence, and Peter says, get up, stand up. He says, I, I am only a man myself, and I love that. I love that. I am only a man. Guys, we could become so easily impressed with power, position, status. But I don't think Jesus needs people like that to do his kingdom work. I don't think Jesus needs rock stars or great athletes or famous actors or influencers who have huge social media platforms to continue the work he's doing. I think he needs these but sums who acknowledge, hey, I'm only a man. I'm only a woman. I am only a human being. I need a supernatural God to accomplish what he wants me to do. Jesus seems to love to work through ordinary people who know they need Jesus if anything's going to happen. Because that brings him glory. When the Apostle Paul begged the Lord to take away his thorn in the flesh, the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So what kind of people do we need to enter this new normal? Normal people who know they're human. But some people who are willing to step out of their comfort zones in order to serve a people who are different than them. People who believe different stuff, or people who worship different gods. We need to, if we're going to love those people, we're going to reach them, we need to step out of what we're comfortable with. And if we're honest, the kinds, of, the kinds of people who change the world 
are those kinds of people, people who, who step out of their comfort zones, people who may not be the most well-known, but become known well by some. And one of our men's groups recently, we were talking about influence and how God uses humble people to impact our lives. And I remember sharing with the guys, I, I was sharing how I've been impressed by a lot of well-known people. You know, I've been impressed by a lot of well-known authors, well-known leaders, well-known pastors who are able to speak really well, write really well, say really neat things. But, but the people who've had the most impact on my life, they're not the people who are well-known. They're people that I've known well. Because they were ordinary people who invited me into their lives and allowed me to get to know them and see them up close and personal. In fact, as I reflected on this, even the stuff that I've read or the stuff that I've heard from all those well-known people that I've been impressed by, that stuff that they teach and that I hear and take in, it doesn't really take root in my life or change anything until I begin to live it out among a people that I have the privilege of knowing well. And so we can't be all well-known people, but we can all be known well by some people who are willing to step out of our comfort zones and let God work through us. Which leads us to the, the power that's required for a new normal. We're still in verse 21. It says, The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. I like the way the Amplified Bible puts it. It says, The hand, the power and the presence of the Lord was with them. The power and the presence gets to what, what the, the hand of the Lord usually refers to in the Bible. It's about the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit through the lives of his people. We saw this in Acts chapter 4, verses 29 to 30, where the believers prayed. They said, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. And then they prayed this, stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And after they prayed that prayer, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They spoke the word of God boldly. The place was shaken. The power of God was why a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord in verse 21. We learned this last week from Peter's talk at Cornelius' house. That even Jesus was able to go around doing good and healing because he was anointed with the Holy Spirit and power and because God was with him. That's the case here. It wasn't because these some people that stepped out were really good talkers. It's because the hand of God was with them. When the church back in Jerusalem heard about this, they sent Barnabas to go check it out, according to verse 22. And then in verse 23, we read, when he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done. So notice, not what people on their own had done, but what the grace of God, the hand of God, the power of God had done. He was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Which means, not only does this new normal require God's power, but it also requires a great deal of perseverance. Perseverance. Barnabas was encouraged by all that he saw God doing, and he encouraged them to keep on remaining true to the Lord with all their hearts. The message translation puts it like this, urging them to stay with it for the rest of their lives. Now, why did Barnabas need to do this? I mean, they were obviously seeing all the great things God was doing too. Like, wouldn't that have been enough to keep them motivated? Why did he have to encourage them to keep going? 
I think the reason he did it was because without being intentional, without working at persevering, we tend to drift. We tend to drift. And I don't know about you, but I never drift in the right direction. I never find myself drifting into a deeper relationship with God. I've never met someone who just unintentionally drifted into growth in their spiritual life. Bobby Clinton was a professor at Fuller Seminary. He did a ton of research on leadership in the Bible. He discovered there are about 800 leaders mentioned in the Bible. About 100 of them have enough data that we could actually make some interpretations about their leadership. About 50 of those have enough information to know how they finished. And you know what he found? Only about one in three of those 50 leaders actually finished well. That's scary. Why? Because we drift. Listen, guys, the devil doesn't need you to do something blatantly evil to keep you ineffective for the kingdom of God. All he's got to get you to do is do nothing. And you'll just drift into ineffectiveness. That's why Hebrews 12.1 instructs us to, to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And then it says, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us there. Notice there's three distinct actions in that verse. There's a throwing off of everything hinder, that hinders us, that, that everything that weighs us down, distracts us, deters us from running the race that God's marked out for us. Hindrances can be tricky to identify because they're, they're different than sin issues. Sin is the second thing that we're supposed to get rid of that so easily entangles us, but those are different. And then notice that even after you throw off the hindrances, even after you let Jesus deal with the sin issues, there's a third action to run with perseverance, the race marked out for us. Why is that? It's because without perseverance, we drift. We drift out of our lanes, the lanes marked out for us. So Barnabas is saying, guys, stick with it. Which, by the way, there's a reason we need the community. We need the community around us because it's not up there, but Hebrews 12:1 starts out. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run with perseverance the race marked out to us. So Barnabas says, remain true to the Lord with all your hearts. And the NASB says, he began to encourage them all with resolute hearts to remain true to the Lord. That word resolute, it could be also translated purposeful or determined heart. And that word remain, it means to continue to hold fast or to abide in continually. Remember what Jesus said in John 15, 5? Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Barnabas is saying the way you persevere, the way you remain true is to be intentional about abiding in Jesus. Make that your priority. Stick with it for how long? The rest of your life. Why? Because it's a lengthy process. And just when you think you've got this new normal down, guess what happens? Another new normal comes. And there'll likely be another new normal coming after that and another one after that because being a disciple of Jesus is a process of a lifetime. And that's why after encouraging the believers, Barnabas goes to Tarsus to look for Saul in verse 25. And in verse 26, it says, when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. Both of them stayed there with the church for a full year, teaching large crowds of people. It was at Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. How many know there's no such thing as instant discipleship? 
No such thing as instant. It is a long, lifelong process. It takes years of growing and learning and growing and learning, growing and learning, and we're never really finished until we take our last breath on earth or until Jesus returns for all of us at the second coming. Now think about this for a minute. Barnabas went and found Saul, who's also called Paul. Now when we last saw Saul, he was being sent off to Tarsus in Acts chapter 9 because people were trying to kill him. Now, sometimes we think that, you know, between chapters of the Bible, there's just a little bit of time passes. We're not exactly sure how long Saul was in Tarsus before we get here to Acts chapter 11. He talks about it a little bit in Galatians 1 and 2, but most biblical scholars think that he was there for seven to ten years. Seven to ten years. Like, we read the Bible quick, and we're like, but only two chapters have passed. Yeah, but almost ten years have passed. So what's Saul doing for those 10 years? In Galatians 1, he tells us he spent three years in Damascus. Then he went to Jerusalem, spent a couple weeks with Peter before going to Syria and Cilicia. Paul's been growing in his faith. He's been discovering, he's been developing his spiritual gifts. He's being discipled. He's going through this process of becoming what God said he would become when he said he was going to be his chosen instrument back in Acts chapter 9, to the Gentiles. And now, here he is going. Because discipleship is a process. It takes time. You can't rush it. Notice that all the, almost all of the, the illustrations that Jesus used for growth in the Gospels, they're all like, in, like agricultural. They're all about like growing and seeds. and You can't rush that stuff. Pete Scazzaro wrote a blog post a few years back. It was entitled, You Can't Do Discipleship in an Hour. And he wrote this. He wrote, a few years ago, a Christian publisher strongly recommended that we reduce our emotionally healthy spirituality discipleship program into four one-hour sessions because that was all that most American Christians can handle. He wrote, people are not experiencing deep transformation in our churches. Large numbers of people live off other people's spirituality and do not intentionally cultivate their own personal relationship with Jesus. We now have tens of thousands of believers in Jesus who are not necessarily disciples. The kingdom of God, he writes, is a mustard seed that grows very slowly. So spiritual growth is a process. Saul spent 10 years before he came to Antioch. And then he and Barnabas, they spend a whole year with this new group of believers. And they stay there with the church. And they, they teach these large crowds of people. What are they doing? They're following the process that Jesus used. Where he would invite this small group of believers to be with him. And then he would go out and he would teach in these large group settings. And then when he was back alone with his small group of disciples, he would explain everything to them. So there was this rhythm of teaching in a large group, explaining in a small group, teaching in big groups, big crowds, and then coming back and, and, and trying to live it out within a small group. That's why we've been trying to make this the new normal at Locust Valley Chapel. We're inviting everyone not only to discover all that Jesus has for your life and in our worship services and in your spiritual discipline, disciplines, but we keep inviting you to be part of a D3 group where you can work out and apply what you've been taught. That's what the process included in the book of Acts. It was large groups, it was small groups. 
By the way, how many caught the last part of verse 26? It was in Antioch that the believers were first called Christians. Why do you think that was? I don't think it was a, a title that they came up for, the, for themselves. They, they called themselves disciples. They called themselves believers. They called themselves followers of the way. I think it's because people around them saw that they were being formed. They were undergoing this process of discipleship, and it was forming them in a way that they were starting to look like Jesus. And so they went, Christians, ordinary people, experiencing the extraordinary power of the Holy Spirit and persevering in this lifelong process of discipleship and doing this all in what I would describe as a prophetic environment or a prophetic culture. Look at verses 27 and 28. During this time, some prophets traveled from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up in one of the meetings and predicted by the Spirit... He didn't just come up with this on his own, the Holy Spirit, that a great famine was coming upon the entire Roman world. This was fulfilled during the reign of Claudius. So the believers in Antioch decided to send relief to the brothers and sisters in Judea, everyone giving as much as they could. They did, this they did in trusting their gifts to Barnabas and Saul to take to the elders of the church in Jerusalem. Now, when I say these people were creating a prophetic culture or environment, all I mean is this. They created space to hear from God and to respond to what God was saying. Creating space to hear from God and to respond to what God is saying. I think they took Acts chapter 2, verses 17 to 18 very seriously, where Peter tells everyone, this was what is spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. They didn't see this as strange. They didn't see it as abnormal. It was simply part of the new normal because the Holy Spirit was now living in all believers. Listen. That doesn't mean that every thought that crossed their mind or every dream they had or every vision they had was from God. No, they were to test everything just like we're to test everything. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19-22 says, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. So prophetic words and dreams and visions, they must be tested. They must not contradict Scripture. They must be consistent with who God is. They should be tested by people who are mature and have gifts of wisdom. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14 that others should weigh carefully what is said. But that same chapter, 1 Corinthians 14, it also instructs us to eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. And that's the kind of culture I'm talking about. A culture that eagerly desires and eagerly responds to how the Holy Spirit wants to move. That's what we see throughout the book of Acts. That's what they did here in Acts chapter 11. Agabus shares a word that he received by the Holy Spirit about a famine. And what did the church do? They responded with generosity. They sent relief to Judea. And so as I envision this prophetic environment, what what I'm really just seeing in my mind's eye is, is Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 lived out. It says, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip 
his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. I'm just going to level with you. I, I, think if, if we, I think we've sort of limited this. I think we've sort of shrunk this verse down to just pastors and teachers. And we've lost sight of the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists. And man, you can't do this without all five. You'll have a weak church. You'll have a shallow church. It's Acts chapter 5, disciples. This is what we see in Acts chapter 11. We see this in action. Go back through and, and read Acts chapter 11 again. You're going to see a prophet, apostles. You're going to see prophets. You're going to see evangelists going out to spread. And you're going to see pastors and teachers that help equip the body. They're all there in Acts chapter 11. They need to be here among us. Mark Sayers wrote a book in 2019, pre-COVID. It was called Reappearing Church, The Hope for Renewal in the Rise of Our Post-Christian Culture. And in it, he suggests that crisis is almost always the gateway for renewal. And so I want to leave us this morning with a quote from this book and then a, a scripture verse as we reflect on this new normal that Jesus might have for us. Mark writes, We need to be interrupted, to have our patterns halted, because doing the same thing only delivers the same results. A study of history shows that it is precisely at moments like this, when the church appears to be sliding into an unalterable decline, when culture is shaken by upheaval, when the world globalizes, opening up new frontiers and fostering chaos and change, that God moves again. Revivals and renewals always come at low ebbs of church and culture. And I don't think anybody would argue that we find ourselves in one of those low ebbs, don't we? And that's exactly the place where God invites us into a new normal. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 18 and 19, then we're going to pray. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. Would you stand with me as we pray together this morning and ask God to send us out with a blessing this morning? Father, thank you for, these, for the some people in Acts chapter 11 that decided to step out of their comfort zones and what they were familiar with and allow this crisis that was called persecution that scattered them, they allowed it to be an opportunity to continue the mission that you set out for the, that the gospel would be spread, that we'd be witnesses to the ends of the earth. And they began going to the ends of the earth through your power and through their, by persevering and, 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 and through a, this prophetic culture that they created. Thank you for that example. It is so easy, God, to look around and to get discouraged. And to say, God, America seems like Antioch. Or America seems like some other ancient biblical nation that just seemed to turn their back on God or have many gods or idols. Or... Seems like we're just surrounded by people who don't look like us, who don't think like us, who don't believe like us. And sometimes we get the wrong idea that, that, that we just need to go back to what we used to have or back to what was normal for us or 
Lord, we just need to maybe just hang on until you return. And, and yet I believe that it's in these moments, just like in Acts chapter 11, this was a turning point for the, the gospel. This was a turning point for the church. They were, they were now going and spreading the good news beyond just the, the Jewish people. They were spreading it to Gentiles, and it was going to go everywhere now. And Lord, I believe with all my heart that you want us to take what you've given us and you want us to spread it to those around us. Because God, we're seeing that this culture around us, we're seeing that this world around us, all of the things that the world apart from you has put their hopes in, the things that they're supposed to make us better people, the things that we're supposed to be so educated, the things we're supposed to be, Lord, it's not working because it's apart from you. God, we live in a world that wants the kingdom without the king, but, but that can't happen. And we've got the message of the king. So Lord, I pray that you'd encourage us to be bold. That you'd encourage us to be those some people who say, I'm going to step into this new normal. I'm not going to do it on my own strength. It's going to be in your power, Lord. We're going to need your Holy Spirit. And we're going to step out in power. We're going to persevere. We're going to keep going. And we're not going to give up. And we're not going to turn back. And we're not going to keep dwelling on the past. But we're going to say, Lord, we want what you have for us. We're going to, we're going to go through this. Because spiritual growth is a process. We're going to persevere. We're going to let this shape us. We're going to let this form us. And we're going to become this kind of prophetic environment where we're expecting all five gifts of the church that Jesus gave. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. All of those would be in operation so that the body of Christ would be built up and so that we become the people that you're longing for us to be. And so Jesus keeps showing us what this new normal is. I don't think any of us knows, but your Holy Spirit's going to reveal to us as we walk with you together. Thank you for listening to the Locust Valley Chapel Sermon Podcast. We trust that the Holy Spirit spoke to you and ministered to you during this time. I want to invite you to join us for one of our weekend services. We worship God together on Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m. in Coopersburg, Pennsylvania. You can find more information at our website, locustvalleychapel.org, as well as our YouTube and Facebook page. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.